Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. A quick message before we get started. My name is Dylan, and I'm helping your host, Dr. Chris Kiefer, with a number of exciting projects to expand the podcast. Right now, we're working on a YouTube channel to have video interviews, transcripts for every episode, improvements to the website, and eventually, there will be ways for you to get involved yourself. Decouple will always be ad-free, so if you enjoy the show, please consider donating. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on the website, decouplepodcast.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Paul Bluestein. Paul is a former Rhodes Scholar, journalist, and writer who has written about economic issues for more than 40 years. His latest book, Schism, China, America, and the Fracturing of the Global Trading System, was published in September 2019. Paul lives in Kamakura, Japan, with his wife, Yoshi Sakai, and is a father and grandfather. A professional interest of Paul's, following his experience of living through the March 2011 earthquake, is the Fukushima nuclear accident. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. All right, Paul. I mean, I usually get my guest bona fides out of the way, and then I like to get more of a sort of personal side, a personal introduction. Um, maybe tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up living in Japan. Oh, it's uh, pretty simply a case of uh, spousal accommodation. Uh, my wife uh, is Japanese and, and wanted to move back after 11 years of living in the U.S., and uh, I love it here. It's very nice, very yeah and what i do you know doing books about um about uh international economics is something i can do kind of from uh from from uh, pretty much anywhere with modern telecommunications being what it is and sorry speaking of modern telecommunications are, are we getting a pretty is, it, is this how is this internet connection because i because my son is downstairs playing video games um it's it's great. with his friends it's, okay. yeah, it's, it's great. No, and it's, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I was talking with a friend about interviewing someone in Japan with this podcast is quite international. So I've been talking to people around the world and I was remembering back last night to, you know, even just making a, a long distance phone call from a pay phone in my youth and having to keep slamming in the quarters. And it's just what a luxury we have. And it seems like you were an early adopter yeah. of this kind of COVID uh, distance lifestyle uh, in the sense of, of yeah. use of technology to, uh, to live where you, where you want to live. So very interesting. Well, I meant also the, um, the the connection. Where I hope it's I hope it's good because I, I got, I've got a better connection downstairs. But we're good. My son is using modern telecommunications to uh, to uh, bang away at video games and and, oh, and the f bombs are flying and uh, <laughs> it's all good, all in good fun. But uh, yeah, uh, it would be kind of a distraction from. No, I'm, I'm you're coming through clearly, and I'm I'm not catching okay. any f I'm not okay. catching any of the f bombs. So I think we're good. Oh, good. Okay. So. <laughs> So, Paul, we're coming up on the uh, the 10th anniversary of the Tohoku earthquake. Um, I was looking up some stats about that last night. The fourth most powerful earthquake in the world since modern measure, measurement and record keeping in, in 1900. Um, it was such a powerful event that it redistributed the Earth's mass uh, sufficiently to shift the Earth's figure axis by 17 centimeters and actually shorten our days by 1.8 microseconds. So, I mean, just a phenomenally powerful natural event. There's a tendency in the West to completely write the earthquake out of the history and focus on the nuclear accident. And that's something I really don't want to do on this show. 
I, I gather you were in Japan at, at the moment of the earthquake. Um, tell our listeners about the experience of that. Oh, yeah, it was quite a day. I mean, we, um, my wife and I were just, you know, we worked together in an, in an, an office. Uh, we sh- just share an office. Um, and suddenly, boom, the, our computers just snapped off, mm-hmm. which was exactly what was supposed to happen because the uh, nuclear plants and power plants all over the country had, you know, the sensors had told them shut down, there's a big one coming. Everything worked great uh, in that sense. Now, anyway, our house started to shake quite, I mean, we, it's a concrete, it's a very sturdy house. Um, and we kind of looked at each other like, oh, it's an earthquake and whoa, 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 that's really an earthquake, whoa, whoa. And um, it, it was, a, it, the thing about it, it was not only quite strong, it, it lasted longer than I've ever experienced. So uh, we went through some um, excitement getting uh, our kids uh, back home. Um, but one of my sons had to spend the night in, in Yokohama to, uh, at the home. But I mean, we, see, we had no idea what was going on because all the, all the power had shown, had no way of seeing the news and we wanted to conserve our cell phones uh, for whatever, we didn't know what. Um, so, you know, I'm almost hesitant to go. I mean, it was, it was a traumatic day for us, but I have to say once we had a, a glimpse of what was going on in Tohoku with, with the tsunami and seeing, you know, people being drowned right before our eyes about eight hours later when the power came on, it was like, oh, well, whatever we're going through, never mind. Um, it was so horrifying. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we thought we were having a kind of a hard day because of that, but um, huh, uh, we, we just, you know, we, you couldn't feel sorry for yourself. Um, yeah. and you were, you were saying this, in terms of earthquakes, this wasn't your first rodeo. You'd, uh, you'd felt a few shocks before. Was this one more powerful or, or I guess, I mean, Japan's a large place. I, I'm not actually familiar with the geography and obviously the impacts were the greatest along the coast. Uh, I think the Sendai coast, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah. was it fairly regionalized in terms of the damage or was the whole archipelago affected? Well, I mean, we're about uh, more than 200. I haven't calculated, I forget what the calculator, we calculated once. It's about 250 miles, I think, from the epicenter. And we really felt it, which gives you some idea of how enormous. You know, Japan, is, um, in terms of area, is about the same as California. Wow, okay. Um, I mean, that's not much for a Canadian, I know. But, um, <laughs> but uh uh, but yeah, I mean, we really felt it. But the thing is, everything worked. Um, and I was a reporter covering the Kobe earthquake in 1995, which was, you know, where buildings collapsed and, and fires started. Um, and um, that was partly because a lot of that was in a very um, uh, low-income, uh, poor part of the of, of town, um, and they've really upped the standards for uh, construction since then. They it, uh, people get tax credits for you know for earthquake proofing their homes. Everything worked. Um, trains stopped right on the tracks. Uh, elevators stopped between floors and then moved up just one floor and, let, and opened up and let people out. All over the country, stuff worked beautifully except for one thing. 
which was <laughs> at, Fuk at Fukushima Daiichi, they didn't have the backup generators on high enough ground to prevent those from being inundated and everything shutting down there and things starting to melt down. If those backup, the backup generators worked yeah. until they were inundated. Right. So that's that was <laughs> that was a major major uh, flaw. Um, but everything else, uh, yeah. it, it, because I mean, it was a one hell of a powerful earthquake. Yes, yeah. the fact that you know we felt it here as strongly as it as we did. Now, I'm, you know, our house didn't break yeah. or anything. Yeah. Nothing fell. But anyway. and you're not you're not anywhere coastal, so the, the tsunami didn't impact you guys at all. No, well, we are coastal, but um, uh, but on a, but it's not. Yeah, we're on a different. Uh, and in, yeah, we uh, we started getting flyers in our mail. But we're up actually fairly high up uh, on the side of a small mountain. But um, we started getting flyers in our mailbox saying, "Would you like to, uh, you know, sell to uh, the people who are living close to the beach?" <laughs> Wow! Yeah, <laughs> because there could there could very well be a, a very severe tsunami in our town, but where where we are is actually the evacuation point. No, it's a very worrisome thing in Japan. I mean, it's an incredibly safe country in almost every respect that you can think of. Right. But <laughs> but it's on a yeah. On a no, seismic, and, and uh, what what you were mentioning about the country, you know, it's a very rich country, um, and it's it's engineered in such a way that that. You know, I guess this was the chink in the armor. I mean, there was a, I remember seeing images of a, a fire, I think, at, a, at an oil refinery, a natural gas plant, which was often, that image was often used, uh, you know, to misrepresent it in a way to, to say Fukushima Daiji blew up and they were not combustion explosions with fire, but hydrogen explosions. So anyway, small detail, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned um, the, the impact and, I, and as of 2015, there were still a quarter million people living away from their homes in temporary housing, uh, 15,000 deaths, uh, mostly from drowning, blunt trauma. I guess some people just were never found as well, um, which that's, I think, one of the hardest things on families is just not knowing or oh, yeah. holding out hope in some way. And so, yeah, I mean, a, a major, major impact. Um, so, you know, I guess cutting a bit more to the chase here, the, the, the way I kind of came across some of your writing um, on the aftermath of, of the earthquake and particularly on Fukushima was a Twitter post. Um, and it, the Twitter post begins with a, a picture of a Fukushima district sake that you're planning on sort of cracking open on the anniversary of the Tohoku earthquake. I, I gather, I mean, I'm imagining this was a national trauma and it's marked in some way and you probably have your own way of doing that with your family. Um, but you really make a point of, and I think you've made a point of supporting the farmers of the Fukushima prefecture by drinking their sake and eating and promoting produce from their prefecture. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that decision? And I think, you know, looking through some of your work and your writing from, I think there was a uh, March 17th piece, um, you know, you were a very, very early messenger of, okay, calm down, everybody. Um, this this kind of hysteria around radiation is not not helping the cause here. So yeah, maybe maybe tell us a little bit about your decision to s support the, the the prefecture in the way that you did, and we'll get I guess after that we'll get into uh, you know your early reactions, and I guess you did you did a bunch of research in the days afterwards to figure out your own sense of God. Should we evacuate? What should we do? I mean, your family man, I guess you got to make those decisions or think through that. So yeah. start off with your decision to support the farmers, and then let's explore that second topic. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, fairly soon um, after, I'd say, you know, in, in the weeks after when when all the worries started about the food, I mean, of course, until it, things settled down and until a regime could be um, established for testing the food, um, you know, uh, it, it made sense uh, for people to be cautious about it. But the, the Japanese government really uh, uh, handled that very well. They they drastically lowered the threshold for safety for uh, for for food and 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 uh, it had been twelve hundred becquerels per kilo. Or I, I can't here it may have been a thousand. In Europe and the U.S., it's it's twelve hundred becquerels or a thousand becquerels per kilogram. Um, for as the, the, the allow, you know, what's considered to be perfectly safe. Um, the Japanese government had something similar. They lowered it to a hundred. So it was like by more, by basically 10, they made it 10 times more stringent because they knew that they, that they had to do this to, uh, to establish a trust uh, in, the, in the food supply. Um, and, uh, and they began a fairly massive uh, testing program um, now, part of the a big part of the problem was that people, you know, didn't trust what the authorities were saying, and and I've got a long story about who I blame for that. Uh, it's a, an American official, but that, anyway, that's a, another long story. Uh, but the um, uh, so anyway, a lot of people uh, were just refusing to buy uh, food from the free because they didn't trust what the authorities were saying that it's we're testing it. It's perfectly safe. Um, they thought this was more, you know, uh, where your the authorities were trying to to uh, mask the severity uh, and and the health risks. Um, uh, our attitude was, um, uh, look, um, this is Japan. Uh, the the civil servants here are, uh, you know, with very few exceptions extremely honest and, and public spirited. Um, and the farmers are extremely uh, concerned about making sure that what they put in, you know, into the food chain is of the highest, of course, Japanese farmers are famous for, 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 for the uh, quality of, the, of their food. But in this case, they also wanted to make sure that it was safe. Uh, so, you know, I can't say with a, with, 100% certainty that there is no way that any food that was sold in Japanese uh, uh, supermarkets that get, gets into the food chain here might might be over that 100 becquerels you know per kilo limit. But for us to have to find something in our supermarket, it's, we, we thought it was almost zero risk. Yeah. And, you know, look, we at that time we had elementary school. Um, uh, uh, age kids, um, and uh, you know we're not going to feed them food that we think is unsafe. Mm -hmm. What kind of people would we be, you know, to do that? I mean, I, I I got a lot of grief for this from from people commenting on my article saying, "Oh, I feel so sorry for your children." You know, this is child abuse and this kind of thing. Well, we would never you know, just to make a political statement, because we're not, you know, we're not nuclear power activists or anything like that. We're not, uh, we, we, we have, we're completely agnostic. Um, we just felt very sorry for these uh, farmers who were, whose goods were 
we thought being very unfairly tainted. And, and I don't want to make it sound like we were being so noble. There were millions of people in Japan who were doing the same, who were also special ordering food uh, from uh, Fukushima Prefecture. Uh, we were getting what they're called gambaru paku, which means uh, hang in there with packages. Um, you know, and it, it, it contained all sorts of kind of fruit and vegetables and so forth. Um, and it's, you know, it is tested. Now, people were, you probably heard that people were uh, so distrustful of the authorities that they were setting up independent testing facilities right. uh, to, because, and they would bring, you know, they'd bring like a bag of rice because they would be worried about feeding it to their kids. And these stories would be very dramatic. Oh, I'm so anxious. Oh my God, you know, I, I don't I don't trust the government. And, 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 you know, these stories would be, you know, so they put it in a machine, you know, and they had some they, people who had, they put a lot of money into these machines because people were willing to pay to have their food independently tested. And at the end of the story, it was always, well, that bag of rice turned out to be okay. Mm-hmm. I have asked food safety activists here, have you ever heard of a case where something that was on the, on the market, I mean, that somebody bought in a supermarket or from their local greengrocer or whatever, that that turned out to be above the limit and they said, no, we've actually never heard of that. Yeah, I mean, there is food in, you know, if you go to, to the area around the nuclear plant and you go foraging in the forest for wild mushrooms, you're probably going to eat something that you should. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of points that you bring but, up here. But that, of course, does not get put in the food chain, right? Yeah, so, yeah. No, a, a lot of, yeah, 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 that, that's, yeah. That was obviously different than Chernobyl, where people were doing a lot more of that foraging and the food supply wasn't as regulated yes. or not regulated at all. I mean, people didn't know about the right. accident in the area. You, you bring up a lot of interesting points right. here. Um, you know, again, yeah, the, audience, the Soviet authorities there didn't. Yeah, the, I mean, the audience, I think my audience is, is generally pretty aware of, of, you know, radiation units, which is, I mean, that's a hard thing to get your head around. Um, but the, uh, you know, for instance, the Becquerel, which is, you know, the decay of a single radioisotope per second. And, I, you know, I think a lot of people and myself included, um, you know, didn't have that realization that the whole world around us is radioactive, but that the European limit is, you know, a thousand radioactive decays per second per kilo of food that you eat. You know, that's I think that would be shocking to a lot of people that are just not aware of the natural phenomenon that, that radiation surrounds us at all time and that. You know, there's such drastically different levels of natural background radiation around the world from, you know, Ramsar, Iran, where it's, you know, 100 times higher than where I live right now, right? Or, or Kerala, India, where it's, uh, what is it? It's about 20 times higher than where I am right now. Um, and, and I think another big issue is people, they think that artificial sources of radiation are somehow more dangerous or, or more harmful. Um, but it's, it's all a wash in terms of right. the biological impact. And, you know, another unit that we use, uh, I'm nerding out here as a physician a little bit, but the, the millisievert, I mean, the, the dose uh, and the unit is, is adjusted based upon the type of radiation as a gamma, alpha, beta, what, what tissue of the body is it hitting? What root of, uh, you know, exposure are you getting? Is it internally inhaled? Is it an external exposure? So, you know, it's it's just it's a very interesting phenomenon, and I think you know you were saying to their credit they they drop the the radiation limits you know <laughs> from a thousand to a hundred. I think there's a criticism as well that that created more hysteria to a degree, um, you know, and certainly I think there's been an impact on Fukushima agriculture in terms of because that limit set so low. I've heard that there's been a lot of efforts to sort of bulldoze topsoil and 
put it in big bags and, and the remediation effort, you know, the costs have really spiraled as a result of that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another interesting point. I think, you know, the, the other phenomenon that's very interesting um, is, you know, I, I remember watching sort of folks like Helen Caldicott, who's sort of the godmother of the anti-nuclear movement, just reveling in the moment, you know, the first few days after Fukushima, you know, I told you so, and everyone's going to get leukemia. And, and there's a, another low-dose radiation researcher named Christopher Busby, who started the foundation for the children of Fukushima. And he was actually distributing uh, or selling um, I think they were calcium and magnesium um, supplements at grossly inflated prices, like five or 10 times what, you know, you can buy these things in the pharmacy, um, you know, to protect people. Um, and I mean, your efforts sound like they were, you know, the opposite in terms of reassuring people. Um, you know, it's interesting that that level of social trust or distrust within a society and in general, J Japan seems pretty harmonious, but I think radiation really gets people's goats, especially in a country, you know, that suffered yes. the first atomic bombings, that suffered the, right. uh, the lucky dragon uh, uh, situation right. after Castle Bravo, that the first hydrogen bomb explosion, or the biggest one anyway, I think that the U.S. conducted. So there's there's a lot to go on here, and I, I wanted to shift a little bit into, you know, that idea of the, the stigma um, following the accident. And you know, in terms of the Naga, Hiroshima and Nagasaki survivors, these are known as the Hibakusha. I'm probably really butchering a lot of the pronunciation here. Um, but Hibakusha, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe but, can you take uh, us back historically to that time and, and talk about, you know, ground us a little bit in, in the ways in which, um, probably the first example, I guess, uh, the ways in which exposure to radiation has has really built stigma and, and kind of traumatized the population from, from that perspective, the aftermath, the, the stigma. Well, that was one of the things that, one of the reasons why I felt so confident staying was, I mean, just to come back to your question about, about you know, what was my initial reaction and why did I, why did we just, I mean, this was very much in consultation with my wife. Cause I mean, of course she was watching all the, you know, getting all her information in Japanese. I was looking at everything in English and we were comparing notes constantly, you know, cause it was, right. we, we were not experts. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing I said to her, I think the day after the earth, after the disaster was, I, we're going to have to buy some duct tape and seal up the house. Um, and you know that was how stupid I was. And she said, well, okay, I don't know where we're going to get duct tape. <laughs> right, if you say so. But anyway, then I, I said, well, let me do some research first. And one of the, one of the things that I, I found in, uh, you know, when we could go on the internet, which then we were being blocked out, you know, like two or three times a day for three hours, you know, they, they, everything would shut down because the, 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 the power was in short supply at that time. Anyway, uh, one of the things that I found that was I, I had not known was that uh, cancer incidence, incidence of cancer in the Hibakusha uh, was really remarkably low. I mean, we I think people have this image, this, this idea in their head, um, you know, that that uh, you know they were they were suffering you know terribly high rates of cancer and it was it was higher than um, than the general population of course but I was very surprised to learn that radiation is a relatively weak carcinogen I hadn't known that I thought if you if you're around a meltdown you know pretty much everybody you know within several hundred miles is is they're not going to die immediately right but they're oh you know you're you're something really bad is going to start inside your body I mean I, that was Mm -hmm. My just sort of as a 
you know, uh, non-expert. Um, but when I be, you know, lo began looking to see what people were saying about this incident and also about this the history, uh, because of course the Hibaksha are the, you know, they, that's that's a, a very good, um, unfortunately, <laughs> Uh, for very unfortunate reasons, a, 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 a very good uh, group to, to study, um, to see what the uh, long-term effects are. Um, so, um, uh, so th yeah, that was one thing. And the other, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what really turned me around. I do remember um, uh, seeing stuff on, of course, there was lots of very alarmist stuff on the internet, but from people who I thought were pretty obviously just, you know, hysteria. I mean, I probably saw stuff by Helen Caldicott, but, but I also saw a briefing by the chief UK government scientist, uh, names escaped me, but anyway, he, would, he said, look, this is a very serious uh, accident. It's after Chernobyl, it's the biggest one we've had, but in, if you're as far away as Tokyo, there is, even in the worst case, there's really, you know, no, risk. And we're actually on the other side of, we're southwest of Tokyo. So we were even further away. But anyway, that, you know, I thought that was very reassuring. So why should, why should I run to Narita airport and plop down my credit card and, and, and say, you know, give me a ticket anyway, I'll pay anything, you know, which people were doing, people were right. doing that. Right, right. That was I guess one of the articles of yours that I read was, um, you know, around, and, and maybe this gets into that uh, U.S. official that you mentioned um, that contributed a little bit to the distrust of the Japanese and their government. Um, but I think it had to do with the evacuation or the, the idea of, you know, the Obama administration figuring out, hey, what do we do with, you know, U.S. military forces that are deployed throughout Japanese or throughout U.S. military bases in Japan? Um, can you walk us through a little bit of that story? Yeah. So I, I was astonished to, to learn about a year after the uh, disaster, a, a, a guy I actually know a bit, he was a colleague of mine when I was at the Brookings Institution, he had been in the Obama White House and he wrote an article for Foreign Affairs uh, about what was called, you know, in the White House uh, during the Fukushima disaster. So, um, uh, and he, uh, the Navy, partly because of their nuclear fleet is really radiophobic. Uh, I mean, the slightest thing goes wrong on a nuclear sub or a nuclear powered uh, carrier and they are, you know, it's, they're just terrified. So they were, they wanted to evacuate uh, because they believed that uh, uh, evacuate the, mil the military forces from, uh, from these bases which would have been a huge uh, major event uh, foreign policy wise, but, uh, but the White House commissioned a, uh, uh, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory to, to do their, and they're experts in airborne plumes. And they concluded that no, even again, even in the worst case scenario, uh, uh, Tokyo wouldn't be in danger. Now in the process of all that, um, there was one episode, um, uh, where uh, uh, on March 16th, um, the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, his name is Gregory Yachko, went before Congress and stated with cameras rolling, I mean, I mean, this was five days 
after after the uh, uh, disaster. And he said, we need to, we need a wider evacuation zone for U.S. citizens than for than the Japanese authorities are saying. Now, why did he say that? Well, they had sent over the NRC had sent over a team of um, experts um, uh, to, quote unquote, help the Japanese <laughs> manage this thing. Some of these guys had never, they'd not been to Japan, but they couldn't speak the language. They had, you know, they were like jet lagged to the gazillion. Like, you know, it was, it was crazy to do this. But anyway, they got the, they misunderstood what they were told. And they, and they were told that there was a very, very dangerous situation in one of the spent fuel pools. Yeah. That it was dry and that, that a fire could start. Uh, and that would send much more radioactive, radioactive particles into the air than even a meltdown. So they reported this to him. And all of this, by the way, is in transcripts that are available under the Freedom of Information Act. On the, they're on the NRC website, to the, I think, to this day. I went through thousands of pages looking at this stuff. So um, they told him, they in these conversations, these conference calls, they told him about this, what they thought was this very dangerous situation. And he said, well, we, you know, we're going to need to have a wider evacuation zone for U.S. citizens and possibly evacuate and possibly give the order to evacuate all U.S. citizens. Wow. So, you know, that had a tremendous effect on, I mean, it was headlines all over the world. TV announcers were going crazy saying, you know, the U.S. government is saying Right. That the situation is much worse than the Japanese government is letting on. And listen, I don't blame my colleagues in, in journalism for this. Um, they were, that, that was a perfectly understandable, you know, way to write this story. It was dramatic that the, a, you know, that the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would say this. Well, again, in these conversations that are transcribed word for word, a few hours after that, in the evening, after he had gone to testify, he had another conference call. And they basically said, boss, we're not so sure anymore that we were right. The people at TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, well, you know, the company that runs the nuclear reactor, uh, the, and, and the government people are saying, no, 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 no. The situation in that spent fuel is spent fuel pool is OK. It's, it's not what you, you know, what you said. Now, no one was, was going to go climb a ladder and look, you know, and, and to, to see because it was too dangerous to do that. But they I were guess this was, this, no, was before, no, no. this is before there was widespread drone use, I guess, as well, right? It's, I'm just thinking through like what we would drones do. Drones would have been great. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Drones would have been, yeah, that would have been the thing. Yeah. Um, so, so now what, now to me, what he should have done at that point was to say, okay, you know, go ahead, give a press conference the next day and say, hey, 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 wait a minute. We now have new information. I'm not, we're not so sure anymore. Mm -hmm. You all have written your story saying the Japanese authorities are, are downplaying this and are you know, basically lying. <laughs> um, no, 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 no. We, they may be right. I, I you know, we, we're now uncertain about this. Didn't do that. Yeah. So, how you know, three months later, three months later, they finally the NRC finally admitted 
that and it, it was true that the, the, the spent fuel pool, this pool uh, uh, holding these spent fuel rods was full of water, and that and there was no, there was no danger of a fire. So, but by that time, of course, terrible damage had been done to the credibility of of the uh, Japanese authorities. Every, it wasn't just you know the the head of the it wasn't just the president of TEPCO and the and the and the you know the head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission here and the and the Prime Minister and 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 Chief Cabinet say I mean it was all the way down the line, you know the doctors in Fukushima Prefecture who are telling people calm down you don't have to you don't have to you know divorce your husband and take your children to Okinawa, you know they, they, this was a serious problem with stress, yeah and and you know and. Uh, but people didn't believe those authorities yeah. because now, look, I'm not putting, you can't put all the blame for this on Yachko because the right. Japanese didn't do, they were not very good at communicating. But it was a, you know, just, if you look back at the stories that were written at that time and the, and the I've looked at transcripts of how CNN covered it. It was a huge, and it, and it was rightfully a huge story. Again, right. I don't blame the journalists. Yeah, yeah. So were, anyway, working, that, that yeah. to me was, you know, shocking, shocking thing where he he didn't, you know, he didn't want to lose face. Yeah. He didn't want to uh, uh, embarrass himself by by admitting that, uh, you know, oh, uh, maybe I went overboard. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, as a policymaker, you've got a lot of responsibility, particularly, I mean, this isn't quite, you know, yelling fire in a, in a movie theater, but, you know, to correct yeah. that, if you did, then <laughs> there's not a fire, you better tell people really quick, oops, sorry, because uh, yeah. those, those have real consequences. And I mean, in terms of the, the actual fate, I mean, the, the earthquake killed about 15,000 people. Uh, my understanding is that the, you know, radiation from the nuclear accident there's controversy. Maybe one person who later died of lung cancer, he was recompensed, I think. He was a Fukushima worker, but far more likely, I think, related to smoking. But in terms of, you know, that's the only maybe radiation associated uh, illness from the actual the plant, which is extraordinary. Uh, but, you know, over a thousand people yes, died yes. because of a rushed evacuation. Um, and yes, you know, which may have been more rushed because of these kind of pronouncements. And I mean, the world, you know, right. for now, anyway, maybe the, the schism that you're, the schism you're describing in your book, maybe that's going to change, but the world for now really follows the dictates of the U.S. And, you know, if you have a U.S. figure, I can imagine, you know, just the, the way that the world is, the world's power systems are set up, you you pay attention. And, and maybe that's going to, especially if it's a message that's more alarmist than your government's giving, I, I can, I can get that. Um just as a bit of an aside here, I do want to talk about kind of relative risk because there's a really interesting story here about, um, you know, the relative risks of, of radiation and how they're they're just so um, blown up compared to, say, maybe I'll just get into it right now. But, you know, there's a really interesting analysis uh, by a Finnish scientist um, looking at the relative impacts of um, radiation versus, you know, particulate matter 2.5 micron, which is um, you know, a very well characterized carcinogen. And uh, we understand the health impacts as well on the circulatory system and heart attacks and strokes, etc. But, um, you know, what she was saying was that, um, you know, even if you live, if you continue to live in some of the most contaminated areas in Fukushima, so you're getting 100 millisieverts per year, which is very, very high dose. I mean, it, you know, as a doctor, it's, it's, you know, we give far higher doses in terms of radiation treatments, but it's, you know, for an environmental exposure, it's still half of, you know, what you get in Ramsar, Iran. 
But if you live there versus evacuating to Tokyo, your risk of a premature death would actually go up just for moving to Tokyo from the air pollution effects, which was fascinating. And if you went, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, you know, and, and it's interesting you mentioning the kind of the Navy, uh, the U.S. nuclear Navy. And I mean, I guess they, they, they have, I mean, to their credit, they have a real culture of excellence. And compared to the, say, the Russian Navy, they haven't yes. had those kind of accidents. Um, you know, and, and I guess that culture of excellence is part of what is behind that. But yeah, I mean, looking at, I think, I think the, it all it all hinged on whether exposure to U.S. forces in the area was going to exceed the EPA limit, which I think is one millisievert per year. You know, again, in the context of you know where I live, uh, we get 2.5 millisieverts of background radiation. If you go to Denver, Colorado, you're up at 10 millisieverts because there's a lot of uranium in the soil, a lot of radon, cosmic rays. You're at higher elevation, so you know, just the decision making around this is is wild. And I think you know, if, if there were two sort of um, two areas that I think the education system could do a better job or where human beings could make such better decisions. If there were two things I could change, it would be relative risk assessment and causation versus correlation, right? I think those are, those are my two, I'll get off my, my uh, soapbox right now. Question for you though, um, you know, some of the claims that, you know, if the fuel pond, uh, the fuel pool catches fire, you know, there's statements like all of Japan would have been unlivable forever and the living would envy the dead, those sort of statements. What's Hiroshima and Nagasaki like as cities? Like if you go there now, um, like have they recovered? I mean, I've never been to Japan. I've seen pictures. I think like they, they're normal cities, right? Or what are they? Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. yeah. I've never been to Nagasaki. Hiroshima is per yes, absolutely. It's, a, it's completely reconstructed. I mean, um, you know, you've everyone's seen pictures of what it looked like after the bombing. Um, oh yeah, it's uh, and of course, I mean, they have the Peace Park in the center where you you know they keep. Ground zero. One of the buildings that was one of the few, you know, that 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 managed to 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 stay uh, sort of structurally intact. Um, oh yeah, no, no, it's a very vibrant city. Um, uh, but you know, uh, I, I mean, yeah, the, the there were such misunderstandings about these um, worst case scenarios. The the uh, the, the Japanese government. Uh, did a very, very rough and ready worst case scenario, which got a huge amount of publicity. And um, the drawing made it look, the way it was drawn made it look as if um, basically a third of the country would have, would have, they would have had to evacuate. And of course, evacuating a city like Tokyo, which is, I mean, the metropolitan area is the largest metropolitan area in the world. Uh, you know, it, it's completely, you know, it's right out of a Godzilla movie, right? I mean, you would have had masses of, you know, people falling onto, <laughs> onto train tracks, you know, babies crying, you know. Um, uh, uh, but th there was never any need for anything remotely like that. But, uh, but this scenario, uh, now I've interviewed the, 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 the man, is, is, is Kondo Sensei, he he's, 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 uh, was the head of the uh, Japan At Atomic Energy I can't remember what exactly what it's called, but anyway, he was responsible for drawing this thing up. And he's no, this was completely mis misinterpreted. What what um, uh, the the um, he was talking about the you know if the wind had blown absolutely steadily in one direction, which was very um, you know almost never happens anyway, and also uh, you know since Fukushima Daiichi is on the east coast of, of, of Japan. The winds normally blow out to sea there. They do sometimes blow in the other direction. 
Um, but you know, it, there's no way that you would have had the winds blowing that that uh, that strongly in one direction. So he had to sort of the outer limit of what could where the radiation could have possibly. And he was talking about the law where you might want to think about relocating people after you know over a period of like 50 years. But this was interpreted as as here's the all of you know all this huge segment of Japan, if, if the worst, if the spent fuel pool had blown up and, 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 and all these, you know, the worst case scenario had occurred, all of that part of Japan would have had to be evacuated immediately. And, and he says, that's not what this thing said, yeah. but that's the way it's been portrayed as, you know, oh, Japan had this incredibly narrow escape. Right. Um, okay, there isn't, hasn't been that much uh, harm. Uh, people are still astonished to learn that if they're not, you know, that there hasn't been that much harm from radiation, that all the deaths that they read about, all of it was from the tsunami. Right, right. Um, it was none of it from 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 radiation uh, and very, very low, you know, I mean, no evidence that there's any uptick in cancer in even in the area towns close to Fukushima. So, um, so this is, you know, there's been so much misinterpretation and I'm really hopeful that the, uh, coverage that'll be coming out uh, uh, today. You know, they actually read a very good piece in The Economist just today, which said there's there's no increase in, in cancer. The food is perfectly safe, but people are still stressed out. There has been psychological trauma uh, mm -hmm. uh, and people won't go back and they don't trust the authorities that's all true that's that is all true there yeah. the human toll of this thing has been very very severe but yeah. not be, not physiologically because of radiation yeah but be, because of yeah of, of well hysteria yeah you know the, the that map you're talking about with the concentric circles it reminds me of uh there's a famous map that was circulating afterwards um which makes it look like there's this radiation plume extending from fukushima and washing over the west coast of the united states and even south america and it's it's actually a, a map of the uh, amplitude of the the waves generated by the tsunami and where they kind of ended up and so these colors of bright red down to blue are just wave height um and that's still used by some people in the kind of anti-nuclear lobby um, you know, who tend to be pretty shameless about, you know, replicating sources that have been discredited, but maybe just as we wind down, um, I guess a couple things, um, the Japanese nuclear fleet is largely idled. I think there's nine plants operating. I forget the number. I think there was something like 40, um, before the accident that we're running, um, largely that's been replaced by coal. Um, again, I, I should have reviewed these facts uh, and the statistics right beforehand, but I think something like $50 billion of fossil fuels is imported now to Japan, maybe over that period since the earthquake, or maybe every year, um, plans to build a lot of coal plants. Um, I think 15 are already under construction. You know, if 22 of these plan, plants get built, the emissions will be higher than all of Sweden or all of Norway. I mean, what, what are you seeing? Does that touch your life at all? I mean, living downwind of a coal plant's not a good thing. Even, I mean, in Japan, I'm sure they've got the scrubbers on and they're, you know, if you're going to do coal, Japan's probably doing it right or as right as you can. But is that, yeah. is, is that something that you're aware of or a concern you have or something that Japanese are talking about? Again, relative risk. 
I mean, when a coal plant's running well, it's it's killing people every day. <laughs> when it's, you know, when there's a nuclear disaster, we we freak out. But yeah, what's what's your sense on on uh, or if you if you know if you're aware of that in terms of energy policy and 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 particularly the coal replacing nuclear? It doesn't. I wouldn't say people are worried about it in terms of it affecting their you know their lungs or 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 public health um, here because. Um, I mean, there may be some, but I, 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 I'm not aware. I mean, Tokyo has really been, the air has been massively cleaned up. And I mean, the Japanese have done an amazing, uh, of, uh, of course, it was notoriously polluted um, right. in, in the first three decades or so after the war, when Japan was, re, you know, built, basically rebuilding and, and industrializing like men. But um, Black people are, of course, concerned about the uh, about the uh, CO two emissions and the effect on global warming, uh, uh, because Japan had you know has had grand ambitions of being of being in you know a, a global leader in 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 cleaning up its uh, carbon emissions. So, I think that's distressing to people. Um, but um, but the sentiment, you know, if you look at polls, uh, people, you know, they quite substantial majorities do not want to uh, restart mm. the nuclear plants. Now, I honestly, um, I'm sorry. I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really pretty agnostic on all this stuff. It's, it's a matter of, to me, it's a matter of economics. I mean, what's, yeah. what's where's the cost what's the benefits and if and if renewables are really as cheap and as reliable as people claim that they can be well i'm fine mm -hmm. um i i'm not i i'm not uh I, i'm an economics reporter but i'm not but i'm an i'm i write about finance and and, sure. and financial crises and and trade so i don't know but um but uh, uh but i do feel very strongly that that the um, uh, the co human cost of this disaster, um, uh, in terms of, I mean, I'm just talking about the nuclear part of it, that it was, you know, physiological effects of radiation were have been, you know, everyone real, everyone who's looked at the science realizes now that it's it was infinite, it was just minuscule, mm -hmm. and that but that there were ha there have been terrible costs. In terms of the stress, the stress the, on families li living in Fukushima Prefecture, on farmers who haven't been able to, who've lost their livelihoods because they can't sell their the food that they grow. There have been some suicides. Um, you know, that's that, to me that's tragic. Uh, uh, you know that that uh, so much uh, uh, suffering, unnecessary suffering um has has occurred um and it was a very bad nuclear you know it shouldn't have happened the tepco was careless about leaving their leaving the backup generators where they did um they were too arrogant i i i buy all of that but um but then the hysteria that was generated after uh and again the the Failure, the moral failure uh, by Greg Yachko to to uh, to basically clarify how the damage that he had done to the credibility of the Japanese authorities. Uh, I think I think you know a lot a lot of thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people' lives have been adversely affected 
because of that. Uh, and it, it, it upsets me. And as an American citizen, uh, I think we owe a great big apology <laughs> for that. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's tragic. You know, it's, it isn't all of its fault. I don't want to make sure, it sound sure. like it is because, yeah. but, but it, you know, it, 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 uh, it's one reason why we continue to uh, buy uh, food from, and, and sake from, uh, from Fukushima prefecture. And, you know, we're going to buy, we need to buy rice and vegetables and fruit and uh, God, we definitely need our sake. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, and uh, why not buy it? It's safe. Uh, and it's delicious. Uh, and, you know, if we can help and we're not, you know, we're, as I said, we're not unique in that regard. The problem is that there are millions of people in Japan who still do the opposite of what we do. Right, right, right. So, yeah, just in closing, then uh, March 11th, uh, the 10th anniversary of the Tohoku earthquake. Um, how was it observed in the country? Um, how do you how do you plan on marking it yourself as, as, as a family? I'm sure it'll be, uh, you know, there will be um, at 2:46 p.m., which is the you know exact moment when the, the, the quake hit. Um, you know, there'll be, you know, the whole country will just kind of stop um, for big moments of silence, and the the I'm sure the emperor will. Uh, there'll be some kind of ceremony, and the prime minister, and and and. Uh, um, for us, um, we will uh, we will have a meal. Uh, my wife has already ordered some uh, another uh, a really really good bottle of of Kushima sake uh, to wash down uh, the rice and 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 fruit and veg and uh, and other stuff that that uh, that, that she'll um, she'll be using for our for our dinner and. Um, but we do that. I mean, that's not that's not unusual for us. We we uh, we we order a lot of food from there um, just as a on, a on a routine basis. Uh, and you know, you talked about how Helen Caldicott was rubbing her hands with glee after after the disaster. Well, I had a lot of comments. People saying, "Oh, you know, I feel so sorry for your children." Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, gee, I was so touched by their concern and I'm sure they'll be, those people will be very, very relieved to know that we're all perfectly healthy. We've been eating this food for 10 years. And <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, we're better for it because it's, it's very nu nutritious, delicious. Yeah. And, and what's hilarious is you're probably eating food that has lower levels of radiation than many people around the world because your regulatory limits are set yeah. 10 times lower. So it's actually, I mean, it's yes. always, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Paul. Well, listen, it was, uh, it was really fun chatting with you. Um, uh, this is a wonderful thing we were saying about modern telecommunications. I can read a, a Twitter thread and say, hey, that's, that's a great story. Let's follow up on it. So real fun talking with you. Thanks for coming on Decouple. Likewise. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Good talking. Yeah, Good to be here. Bye. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.